Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Your host is Michelle Beck. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, thrivers, their friends, and family by providing resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here is your host, Michelle Beck. Hello and welcome today. Wow, brain fade. This is what happens when you go live. Good morning. My name is Michelle Beck. I'm the host of Breast Friends Cancer Support Network here on the Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel. And thanks for being here today. So I am a two-time nine-year survivor of breast cancer. I am the patient programs assistant at Breast Friends of Oregon. And when I have time, I write at a blog called I Never Liked Pink. So today I'm so honored to welcome a fellow Voice America host who has her own podcast called Resiliency Within when I was a guest on it last Last year, talking about how I went through my cancer journey and found resilience in myself that I didn't know I had. And my guest today, Elaine Miller Karras, she specializes in finding that inner strength that we don't know that we have and really to get through all of life's traumas and tribulations tribulations and she's taken this on a global level she works communities um organizations and she really she knows her stuff so i'm gonna let her give you her bio because she's gonna be much better at it than i am so (laughs) elaine welcome and thanks for being here today tell us a little bit more about yourself please well um first of all i'm i guess i can say i'm a mom i'm a grandmother i'm a wife a sister um, and also, I think of myself as a as a citizen of the world. I have been so fortunate to travel all around the world with the uh, nonprofit that I co-founded called the Trauma Resource Institute. And I have to say, I'm writing the second edition of my book that's called Building Resilience to Trauma right now. And so I am I'm kind of journeying through the last six or seven years of my of the places I've been and what I've learned since my book was published. And I have been so grateful in my life to meet people who are working all over the world to improve the well-being of their population, whether it's working with children, whether it's working with moms and their babies or caregivers or our elders or working with individuals who are facing, you know, chronic illnesses or illnesses like cancer. Um, And how do we um, how do we cope with kind of the windstorms of life that we all experience and how do we go forward um, in maybe learning a set of skills that can help us maneuver those difficulties. So I think when I'm talking about myself, I'm talking about really the, the, the most gratitude I could possibly express for the people that I've met on my journey that have so taught me about how to build well-being that some people call resiliency. Um, in not only in their own lives, but in the lives of their family and their community. I mean, even in their country. So I've been really fortunate to work, you know, on the national level with some individuals as well as in organizations, as well as, you know, working in communities that have barely any resources. So I think that part of my journey is that I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And I think as a social worker, I was always thinking about, well, boots on the ground. You know, these things are happening to real people. We can sometimes make lofty decisions in higher places, but is it really impacting the people that we want to to uh, uh, affect to improve lives and also to empower them? You know, sometimes people do things to others rather than asking them, what would you like to do for yourself? And I have found all over the world, even when the, the, the resources are limited, that people have all sorts of ideas how to improve their communities. And I think that what we've done in the nonprofit is we've tapped into that, asking them and then bringing a set of wellness skills based on neuroscience that can help them accomplish those goals. So what um, you may have said it, and I, I blanked because this is my mind this morning, apparently. So what's the name of the nonprofit that you co The Trauma Resource Institute. And people okay. can actually go to our website, um, traumaresourceinstitute.com, if they'd like to learn more about what we do in the world. And we have a lot of free podcasts and webinars that we've done that people can listen and learn about the skills so that they can maybe start integrating some of those um, skills into their activities of daily living. We even have an, uh, an app called iChill that's free 
didn't that know you, that. I'm going to have yeah, to look at that. So you can, yeah, it's free and you can download the app and you can learn about the skills. And, and what we've, and what we've seen is that people can integrate skills um, into their activities, of daily living that actually replenish and nourish themselves so that they can maneuver whatever windstorms of life are sent their way. I love that. So that kind of leads me into the question, how do you define resiliency? Well, that is a good question. Boy, have I thought about that one a lot, because there are many places in the world where, um, including in the United States, where resiliency is a dirty word, because sometimes resiliency has been used as a weapon to marginalize people, to say things to say things like, oh, well, you know, you're such a resilient group. You don't really need the resources. Um, you can pull together, right? And so also it, it makes an assumption for some people that you're not interested in hearing about your suffering. And so my definition of resiliency, and you can imagine I've created two models, the community resiliency model, and the trauma resiliency model that have the word resiliency in it. When I started you know, creating these 20 years ago, resiliency wasn't the buzzword that it has become. So for me, resiliency means a lot of things. And the one thing that it does not mean, and I want to really underscore that, is bouncing back. Bouncing back to what? If you were bouncing back to oppression or suffering, you don't want to bounce back to that. But I think what um, my definition has evolved. So first of all, it's showing up in the world with compassion, with like a deep listen, listening to people's suffering. It also means having a certain attitude of hope and optimism. And I, I uh, just recently read the book of joy by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and um, Desmond Tutu, who sadly just died in December. But boy, they both have experienced so much suffering in their life. And that when you read the book, it talks about cultivating joy and well-being. And so by doing that is not minimizing suffering, but it's saying what I say about resiliency, which is what else is true in your life? And that question is very important, right? Because when you say what else is true, and I think we've all met people that if they've had suffering, then they have what we call a negativity focus. So all they say, oh, life is horrible. This is horrible. Everything's horrible. Well, if you stay in that mindset, and certainly sometimes we need to listen to why they think life is horrible, right? But if you stay in that mindset, then you're not thinking about solutions, or ideas that might improve yourself, your family, your community. And so that comes into how do we get to that spot? And that's the other definition of resiliency. It's about embodied well-being. You know, sometimes saying, oh, you need to do self-care. You need to do this. And you're going, oh, yeah, I got to do self-care when I've yeah. got, you know. Who's got, got time for self-care right who now? Has got, right, exactly. So, but if you pause for just a second, and I'm going to ask, I'll ask you this, Michelle, and ask your listeners, you know, um, can you think of a time when you experienced a sense of well-being? Was there a time that something uplifted you or gave you hope, even at times when you were feeling despair? Can you think of something for yourself, Michelle? Oh, definitely. What comes to mind for me is the moment I walked into Breast Friends, the organization that I started volunteering for. And now four years later, I'm an employee and I get to host this wonderful podcast because I had just finished my second treatment for breast cancer um, four years after my second four years after my first one i had been through multiple surgeries was really struggling with my medication and i was i was broken and lost and when i walked into that door it wasn't even because i thought i needed support it was i i needed to do something yeah. and give back and that literally walking into that door, which was very scary, changed my life. So and when you think of that moment yeah. of walking through that door and it changing their life, I'm going to ask you another question. What do you notice happening on the inside? You know, I didn't notice it at the time when I was there, but now I think about it and it just, it, it fill, it fills my soul with light. Because so can you sense that light inside your body? Is there a place where the light lands? Where can you tell me where that might be? For for me, it's it's my gut. You know, it's your just gut. Kind, of, kind of in the middle, <laughs> you know, and that's where a it's lot at. of people have that mm -hmm. sense of their gut. So what you just did in sharing that beautiful story is it's embodied well being, and think about the embodied well being that came out of despair and suffering. Yeah. And so that's what I've seen, that very simple question all over the world. And we're not used to, like you said, I didn't pay attention to it then because it's something called interceptive awareness, which for me is kind of the core of 
the information that I bring into the world and the score and the, and the skills is that we're not used to paying attention. Oftentimes we pay attention when there's pain, suffering, but not necessarily well-being. And so what we've learned in the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency model skills is when you start paying attention to your well-being, that we have an amazing capacity, all human beings do, that that well-being can expand and grow. So when I think about the definition of resiliency, it's about embodied well-being, and so I would guess that's where you led to, it got you to the name of your own podcast, which is Resiliency Within. Exactly. And so, and even though there is some um, uh, discussion and discourse about the weaponizing of resiliency, I'm certainly not ready to throw out the word, especially when you, I think if you hear my, my widened definition, um, that I think that's what I've seen, that well-being that exists all over the world. And it's been so um, humbling and also immensely encouraging, even in the greatest suffering, to see that emerge. Well, I imagine, like you said, it's being resilient. It's not that we don't want to hear about your trauma or what you've been going through. I think it needs to be heard and shared because that's one of the ways to process and not not bounce back, but get to a new place where you can embody that well-being and the strength that you have found inside. Well, exactly. And when you when you think about maybe yourself, if I can ask you a question, right? Is that, Mm -hmm. is that I'm sure the cancer journey was not easy. And when you describe, you know, going through that door and that you were with best friends and I love the name, um, breast friends, because it sounds like best friends too. It does. And we, we we mess it up all the time ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So, but anyway, but when you think about that is that oftentimes many things that have happened to us in our life that because of our despair, our suffering, that something has come from it. That's actually, you know, you know, our gratitudes or another aspect of, you know, in the psychological literature, they call it post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to think about it maybe as, as post, um, as resiliency, that, that well-being is also the way that we're crafted. And I have so many examples of, I mean, I think that I, I just was writing about this when we were in the Philippines after Typhoon Yolanda, we were in a city called Tokloban, which had been the most devastated. I think that like 5,000 people died in the community. Mm. And so we were working, they had, you know, um, um, support services for the community. They were in like big tents because there were so many buildings that had been destroyed. And um, there was a man and he was had been talking to one of our, our teachers of the community resilience model who was Filipino because we just finished training a number of people to share the skills with the natural leaders, we call them, mm-hmm. of the community. And so he came over to me and goes, you know what that man just told me? And I said, no, what, what did he say? He said, he told me that, um, you know, he was, he was grieving and suffering that he had lost his entire family. But he said, he said, but he pointed to another man sitting across the room and he said, you see that man there? And the, the um, community teachers said, yes. He goes, well, he lost his family too. We've decided that we're going to create a new family. Oh. And yes, we will remember our loved ones that are no longer here. And yes, there's grief, but we have to go forward and we'll go forward together. Oh my gosh, Michelle. Well, and... and- so- yeah, we and we are pack animals. You know, we need yes. that. Com- we need community and we connection. Need community. It's random but, short story yeah. that I'm going to throw in here. A few weeks ago, um, actually about a month ago, my son and I we traveled. We, we're we're all fully max vaccinated and boosted, and we came home and my son came down with COVID, like literally the next day. And my husband was also traveling, and he came home a few days later. So we were all masking in our house you know, staying separate, sleeping in separate rooms. And just for that week, that loss of the personal connection and even touch and so many things. I mean, we were all still in the same house and I felt such a deep sense of sorrow. Mm. It just, it was such a reminder that we, we really need our communities and we're, we're very huggy and kissy. And, you know, that's just how we can, that's, that's how we show our affection. We're very physical. And the loss of that for a week was devastating. 
So Michelle, can you remember the moment that you could hug your son? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there you go. See, and that's you know what the question I just asked you is what you know. It's like listening to, of course, the sorrow of that of not being able to hug your husband and your child, and and yet there's these moments that go, oh, that moment of hugging him, yeah, must have been really fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to project something that you didn't feel, but I could just see in your face oh, that yeah. you're <laughs> listening to us, and she's going, yes, she's nodding her head. So I think that's what we've done, but in a respectful way. You certainly can't ask questions about that when people are deep into. Of- but even when that, you know, one of the things that we did um, was after the um, the horrible attack in Las Vegas, um, mm, my yes. next door neighbors um, friendship group was all there. And my next door neighbor is a police officer. And he said, you know, his wife said, Elaine, can you come over and talk to our friends? So myself and um, another colleague from Try Mike Zap, we went over there and, and, and all of them, we didn't know, were pretty much in law enforcement. And there were the wives and their children who were oh. like, you know, young adults yeah. like maybe mm-hmm. in there in like 19 to 23 year olds but mm-hmm. i'll never forget that because as we walked in there i mean the grief was palpable i mean imagine yeah. being there what they saw one of their friends was still in the hospital was expected to survive yeah. but they had seen so much but one of the things i say when i go into a group like that i'll say you know we want to hear as little or as much as you want to share with us because some people don't want to share mm-hmm. and i imagine does that happen too with cancer survivors i mean yes. some people just want to kind of get in there and say i just want to feel better so we just said and if you don't want to say anything at all you can just say pass and you don't have to say one word and there was one man in particular who he looked like he was suffering and his wife was sitting next to him rubbing his back but he just looked like he was broken mm-hmm. and when we got to him he said you know i've seen so much as a law enforcement person really unspeakable things yeah but I've never seen such horror. And um, and you could see that there's, he didn't say it, but I kind of felt like he had lost his hope. So as we went around the room and he did, that's kind of all that he said. And so then we got to, people were saying, well, you know what, I'm, I asked the question, is there anything um, also, as you're you know, saying as little or as much as you want, is there anything that's helping you get through right now? And even he said, well, my wife is helping me get through. And every single person said something, their faith, their community, um, their children. I mean, it was like, again, in a very respectful way, hearing the suffering, but also hearing the story. So as we as we went through, we were there for maybe about an hour and a half. The, the gentleman that I, that I you know, talked about, he said, you know, I want to say something. He said, after hearing the things that are helping us, I didn't feel any hope when I walked into this room, but I'm feeling a little bit of hope now. Mm-hmm. And so what I say when someone says that, I said, well, I'm just curious, can you sense where the hope lands in your body, just like I asked you about the light. Mm-hmm. And he's, and you know, and I remember he said, it's in my heart. Yeah. And in that moment, you could see the shift happening in the whole room because everyone in that room loved each other. And they had been through something, not only through the Las Vegas horror, but also being in law enforcement. Yes. As you know, as first responders, they go through a lot. Mm-hmm. So in any event, those kinds of moments to me are so meaningful that we can help sow those kinds of seeds. And I was talking to another, I mean, I could probably go on and on because I'm in the midst of writing this book, Michelle, so you have to forgive me. But the other, I was talking to a woman that I met in Haiti. Um, her name is Dr. Agat Jean-Baptiste, and she works for the World, World Fund in Switzerland. When I met her, I stayed at her home in Port-au-Prince after the earthquake of 2010. Mm-hmm. There were no hardly any hotels available. She was so lovely. At that time, her daughter, who's now 12, was eight. I mean, actually, she's 13. She was eight months old. Oh, wow. And so we recently had a conversation about perhaps we'll see um, bringing the ideas of the community resiliency model to the World Fund. And um, and so we were talking and reminiscing. And she said something that just I mean, I just had I'm going to have tears in my heart just, you know, re- here remembering it. And she said, you know, Elaine, these skills were like seeds of light, seeds of light. And I'm thinking about seeds of light that grow from despair. I'm thinking about you walking into breast friends, right? Mm-hmm. Or the man talking about his neighbor. Those things are are really about my definitions of well-being and resiliency, that those kinds of moments exist among suffering. So as you can see, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. Even as the world suffers, um, right now I have a lot of friends in Ukraine. Mm. Um, I've been talking to them on a regular basis because they are using the elements of my model in a program for children. And so you can imagine right now, there's a lot of children in Ukraine that are probably living with a lot of fear and grief, not yes. knowing what's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess I wanna say too about that definition, when you're in it, 
we're in the when you're in it, it doesn't mean that you can't still try to remember what else is true. It can be harder when you're in it because every now and then you can get gripped with the fear of what if, right? What if, you know, a bomb comes into my home? What if, right? Those kinds of things happen. And I'm saying the bombs of Ukraine, but bombs can come in people's homes because of community violence, because of, you know, a diagnosis of cancer, right? That shifts everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have learned that even in the storm that you can take a moment to remember what uplifts you, what helps you get through. It doesn't take, I mean, the windstorms of life keep coming at us. That doesn't stop. Yeah, they they just keep going. No, no matter how good we're doing, no, like it's no, like they don't stop. the universe but, just laughs and throws something else at you. Exactly. But our reaction to it, right, can, you know, can be um, can be different. You know, and I and I'm, you know, I've been thinking, reminiscing, knowing that I'm going to be coming on your show, that both my mother and father died of cancer. My dad was a smoker. <laughs> he died of small cell um, cancer. Uh, lung cancer. And my mom was actually in her 80s. She had a a glioblastoma. She had brain cancer. Um, But in any event, I can remember my dad. And my dad was also a recovered alcoholic. And I was really worried that when he um, was diagnosed with cancer, and when we we knew how terminal it was, that he might just say, well, forget it. I'm just going to go back and drink. Well, you know, he didn't. He became, I, I called him like he was a holy, sacred sage at the end of his life. Because what he gave to us in his dying was the true character of his being, his kindness, his compassion, and even his compassion for all of us, knowing that he wouldn't be there any longer and what he said to us. Um, I'll never forget that night that, you know, he said, now, Elaine, you got it. You and your mom need to get along better. My mom and I used to fight a lot. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, so my mom and I laughed because we were pretty uh, strong characters. Right. But I mean, those kinds of moments when people are being are faced with, you know, with with the end of their life and what that means to them. And, and remembering my dad's well-being and and his really resilient moments and what he left us and how he didn't start drinking again that he held on to you know he was i I called him an aa devotee um (laughs) and i can remember his funeral i was lucky enough to uh, do his eulogy and i mean his funeral was packed with aa folks Mm -hmm. and we saw how many people he had touched in his life I have a family member who who's recently sober and is goes to AA meetings every day and they have developed this amazing community of yes. supports. Yes. And, and we we talk about it all the time and just a whole new the new friend group, the support group, all of the things. It's it's just like we talk about in the cancer community, finding people who get it and who yes. understand what you've been through can really make your healing so much better. You know, exactly. And I and I think that when you even say that, people came up to me after the funeral and said, if your dad could stay sober during this, so can I. He's given me more motivation mm-hmm. to continue showing up, you know, to my AA meetings and continuing my journey of sobriety. So, you know, it's like we don't know those kinds of things that are going to to affect us and shape us and and lead us on um Lead us journeys journey of life of, of life and, and healing because i think that if we think that we're going to get through this without getting punched in the nose every now and then <laughs> no no one is that lucky <laughs> no <laughs> but you we know, can you, reconstruct <laughs> yes well and i i kind of want to go back to why you founded the trauma resource institute so on the website it says it's a nonprofit organization devoted to cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities throughout the world so why did you feel that this well that is a, that's a good question so i am as i said a licensed clinical social worker and i was working um as a teacher of family medicine there's teachers of family medicines all over the world right that um and people may not know that teachers of family medicine also have what are called behavioral specialists. I was the behavioral specialist. So my job was to teach the young residents and they were very green. You know, (laughs) here they had just finished medical school. So they were starting their family practice residency. I would say that some of them had been such good students. They didn't have a lot of interactions with 
with people, right? In terms of, and here they were, yeah. you know, you know, good students have, don't always right? have great people no, skills. And, and also, you know, people idolize physicians of thinking they know more than sometimes they know. And there's certainly very wise physicians out there. I know many of them, but in any event, I could see that I was, I would co what we call co-attending with the medical faculty. So someone would come into the clinic and they would have symptoms of whatever it might be. And then the resident would have to go and see the, the patient and come back and present it to the medical doctor and to me. So I would look at some of the, the what I now call biopsychosocial aspects of care. So they might say, oh, well, Mrs. Um, Mrs. Smith um, comes in with symptoms of, um, let's see, sleeplessness and also gastrointestinal problems, right? And so they'll say, okay, so they give her a diagnosis and say, oh, we're giving her Ambien to sleep and, so, and, and we'll give her um, some kind of medication for her stomach problem. So then I would say to them, oh, and so what's happening in Mrs. Smith's life? And they'd look at me like, I don't know. <laughs> I'd say, okay, you got to go back in there. And like, find wh- out. why does that yeah. matter what's happening in her life? <laughs> right. You mean what happens in our life affects <laughs> yeah. our bodies? Yeah. yeah. So we actually had this wonderful technique that was that was uh, designed not by me, but it was called the bathe technique. And so go. So it means background, affect, troubling, handling and is for empathy. So I would teach this to every resident. Okay, so find out what's going on in her life. Ask her how she feels about it. Ask her what troubles her the most. Um, Ask her how she's handling it, because maybe she is or is not handling it, and then say some empathic statement. Now, believe it or not, there are many young doctors that didn't know what an empathic statement was. So I would, so there was like, there were like three empathic statements for every season, like, um, well, it sounds like you're doing the best you can under the circumstances. Or this might, this sounds like this is very difficult for you right now. So we would teach that and they would come back and go, Elaine, that kind of works. <laughs> like, said, yeah, really? No, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. So then we'd also, you know, encourage them to, to screen for like depression or anxiety if there might be other factors leading to the sleeplessness and the stomach problems. Well, guess what? Invariably, there was something going on in the person's life. You know, we were in a part of uh, California that was, you know, had inner city violence. I mean, it was just a very, a lot of poverty, a lot of um, a lot of hard things happen to people's lives, right? So, um, so anyway, when they started, when that started happening, I started really seeing also the link to trauma. When you talk about trauma informed, that something happened to these folks that led them to have physical symptoms in their body that led them to the doctor. Now, these things that happened wouldn't lead them to knock on the door of the therapist because they were having problems with their gut and problems sleeping. So they go to the doctor and many of the, the, the family practice doctors were not well equipped. We were trying to equip them so that they would know what to do when that happened. But if they didn't ask, you know, they have a very short time to see people, right? But what sometimes, is it, like six minutes or yeah, something? It's like it's, the average. I mean, we used to call it the 15 minute hour. It's probably like, a, yeah. you know, like the seven minute hour now. Mm-hmm. But in any event, if you don't have some of those ingredients of what's happening with individuals, you don't know what's going on. But anyway, so it was clear to me that trauma, the impact of traumatic experiences impacted people's lives. So then I started doing a lot of research. I um, would go to conferences and there was a particular person's um, that he's written a book since his name is Bessel van der Kolk that wrote an excellent book. Um, At that time, it was just a paper on the internet that was called, um, I think it's the body keeps the score. And so it's kind of like your body remembers the traumatic things that have happened to you in your life. And that, they get expressed by what we call somatization. That doesn't mean it's in your head, it's in your body. Mm-hmm. And so it was very clear to me that many times we were pathologizing and thinking that people, there was something wrong with them in psychologically when they were just having kind of common reactions to really hard events and the series of hard events that happen when you live in poverty in the United States or that you live in a community that has a lot of violence, not to say the things that can happen to us when we're little. And that's where there's a whole burgeoning area that's happened over the last, well, it's since the late nineties that's called trauma informed that came out of the adverse child experiences study where um, it was done by Kaiser Permanente. And what they found that if you had 10 or more, if you had, they asked questions about 10 adverse child experiences like child abuse, sexual abuse, if your parent had been incarcerated, things that you would expect. Mm-hmm. But they found that if you had four or more of these, that your chances of having chronic pulmonary disease, diabetes, I mean, the whole slew of 
illnesses that happen in people were astronomically higher than those who had zero. But the one that knocked me away, if you had six or more, your lifespan was cut by 20 years. So that means something happens to us, right? Something traumatic when we're children. And that that sets something physiological into our body, which there's a whole study of what's called aleostasis, which is really the body's um, uh, ability to balance and come to equilibrium that has, you know, that there's lots of hormones and different things that affect that. But so if that's true, and so getting to why I started the Trauma Resource Institute, I didn't know as much as I know now about the biology of it, but it was clear to me that every single person on the globe needed to know about the neuroscience of trauma and how to put it in people's hands that was accessible, affordable, adaptable, <laughs> portable. That, and that's why the iChill app also came to be, right? Because you can go listen to the app, and, you know, and, and you know, it's amazingly that many people around the world now have access to smartphones. Mm-hmm. But we also have iChillapp.com. If you don't have a smartphone, most people have access to the internet where they can go in and listen to the skills of the model. So my really desire was to put biological-based skills in the hands of every single person, from a little teeny person to the oldest person on the planet. And if we could do that in a simple way, how might we change the world? And so but let's, it, oh, sorry, I was gonna say, so let's it came out of about, being a, it really came out of being a family medicine, um, mm-hmm. uh, teacher of family medicine. It's amazing how things grow. Tell us about, I, there's two models that you use at the Institute. The first is the trauma resiliency model. Can we talk about that for a few minutes? Well, so the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model are like definitely cousins. Um, they share things. Um, for example, they share the, the six wellness skills that are in the community resiliency model. And the six wellness skills are really designed um, to help you learn how to read your nervous system. So you can simply tell the difference between sensations of distress and well-being. Once you can do that, you can have a choice. So even let's say you're having a procedure for cancer and it's uncomfortable and you're distressed, we would say, well, is there any place in your body that feels even a little bit better? It could be your foot. What happens? <laughs> no, really, it could be as simple mm-hmm. as your foot. Bring your attention there and what might, you know, does anything change? Or let's say that doesn't. You say, oh, no, my whole body's just feeling awful. So then it might be, can you tell me about a time in your life that was uplifting? that gave you peace, what is anything helping you get through? Many people will say their faith and you can see their absolute eyes light up even when they're experiencing great suffering. So those kinds of what else is true things are in both models, the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model. So there's six skills about well-being, And so the trauma resiliency model is directed towards mental health therapists. So it's, these are for private practice providers who are working with someone individually that want to bring these biological based um, skills to their clients. So they learn that in the training, but there's three additional skills that I've adapted from uh, a model called somatic experiencing by Peter Levine. And these skills are for taking the traumatic event and working to reset the autonomic nervous system so that the um, the energy that was uh, is in the body that's connected to the traumatic experience can be released so that your body rewires itself and comes back into the present moment of awareness with not having the heavy backpack or burden of the past traumas in your lap every day of your life. So it's working with the biology of the human human nervous system. And just to say it simply, is the theory is based on that um, when we can't complete a survival response, like we can't fight, we can't flee, we can't get away, um, there are different biological mechanisms that get stuck in the body. And that if you can release it by saying, well, if you could have, what would you have wanted to do when that event happened to you? And the person starts in their mind's eye thinking of what, what that might be like. There are actually physiological responses in the body as if you really got away, even if you really didn't get away, because there's this whole other kind of network of how the brain is designed that is called implicit memory. It's body memory. Mm-hmm. And that has no space and time. It's, it, it's, it can be, it's like when you have a traumatic experience that sometimes you can hear a smell or a noise and all of a sudden your body feels like it's happening in the present moment. Well, that's the bad news of it. But the good news of it is at that moment, you can rewire it as if it didn't happen. So that's what the trauma resiliency model does. It's very powerful. And there's other models too in the world that are similar to what we do, but we also tried to make the model affordable so that 
<clears throat> it wouldn't take every penny in your bank to be able to learn the model to start integrating it to help your clients. So that's that's the that's the trauma resiliency model in shorthand. Perfect. And what about the community resiliency model? Well, the I community resiliency yes. whole different scope. <laughs> well, the community resiliency model it actually grew out of the trauma resiliency model. And when you say, you know, how did you start the nonprofit? But I'd say how this came about was really in not only in the work with the family practice doctors, but also my our work in Haiti that I mentioned. And in Haiti, we saw that people could learn the wellness skills. And they and they don't have like in the part of Haiti we were in after the after the earthquake, there was one psychologist for 60,000 people in the central plateau. So how could that one psychologist possibly help every single person? But the idea started emerging. Oh, but look at there's always a very wise person that lives in the village. People go to that person anyway. Mm -hmm. What if you equip that person with the wellness skills of what has become the community resiliency model? And so besides their wisdom about their culture, about their people, you also say, oh, these are some additional things that might be helpful for you. And so, I mean, so we started doing that in Haiti with the community resiliency model. So basically, it's the six skills there. Um, we will call we'll call them mind body wellness skills used for self care, and they help to stabilize emotions and result in more adaptive thinking in situations when we're experiencing emotional or physical distress. And the six skills can be learned by children as well as adults. You can really really learn across the life the lifespan. And this is what I said earlier. We help the core of both models is helping to learn to read the nervous system. That's so important because so many of us don't, we just, we just, they're, they're sensations and we're like, okay, well, this is, this is going on right now, but I don't have time to focus on that because I've got this trauma going on over here. You know, I was just diagnosed with cancer, so I don't care about my body, but we're going to talk a lot more about this when we get back, but we do have to take a short break. So listeners, please stay with us. If you would like to help Breast Friends continue on its mission to ensure that women do not go through cancer alone, please text BF Radio to 41444 or go on our website and check out patient programs to see we can what we can do for you or your loved ones. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444 or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck, and my guest is Elaine miller Karras co-founder of the Trauma Resource Institute, a fellow podcast host on Voice America at one o'clock on Mondays, check her out, and author so many things. But let's kind of delve into cancer a little bit. And I know that's not your main focus, that's but what our listeners really have, have mainly gone through. So how do you feel that cancer survivors or people who are, are living with living with cancer can work on finding that inner resiliency to not to bounce back, like you mentioned earlier, but to get to a place where 
their mind and their body are in a good place despite what has happened. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you said it to begin with, I think as human beings, we are designed for social engagement and to be with others. And and so having a supportive network of people that um, can hold you in the way that you need to be held, I think that's what you described to me, Michelle. And as you know, some people say really stupid things <laughs> when someone gets a diagnosis of anything, right? Um, yeah, and, like- and hopefully to get that right group of people with you. And I think that can make such a huge difference. I know when I worked as a medical social worker in the hospital, one of the things when people were newly diagnosed with cancer, my role was to bring in resources so people could know where they could go to find more help, like the American Cancer Society, for example. That was one of the ones that we used way back then. I imagine it's Mm -hmm. still there too. But we also have so many other kinds of support networks because we have more, I think internet has been great in helping us to have different kinds of support groups depending on diagnosis. So if someone's example, a good friend of mine was diagnosed with leukemia and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Association was something that was really helpful to her and mm-hmm. getting more information because some of us want all the information that we can possibly get about whatever we've been diagnosed with. But I've also learned that some people don't want to know all that information. They want to just say, okay, tell me what I need to do and I'll do it, but I'm not going to go on the internet and look at everything possible. Mm-hmm. Sometimes looking on the internet, everything possible is not the healthiest thing. It, to it, can, either, it can right? be a downward spiral yes. and not a good day. It's yes, it's not never, a good day. Never exactly. try to self-diagnose yourself on, on right. Google. Stay away. Yes. Yeah, so I've learned that. But I think then the other part is what we've kind of already talked about is um, I have a, a dear friend recently that had a diagnosis and I did a, a special uh, webinar for them, for the, her, him and his wife, um, explain the skills and how they may be able to be helpful for them as they were going into the hospital for a lot of different procedures. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, you know, we haven't talked much about the family members of of people who have been diagnosed with cancer, because it really is something that impacts everyone in the family. 100%. And, 100%. And so I think that skills like this can be not only helpful for the person who's been diagnosed, like the community resiliency model wellness skills, um, but they also can be helpful for the family. Um, as you know, has as a family member that have had three family members, you know, um, grapple with cancer, is that I know I felt pretty helpless at times, and I felt not in what I would call my resilient zone, and I had to work really hard on how I could stay within my zone. And I'm not saying that it's easy to do that. No. So it means what are the kinds of um, activities that cultivate your well-being? I mean, there may be things that have to curb your your activities because of the diagnosis or because of the treatment, but are there things that you can still do? Um, You know, if there's a, a person that you know has been there for you, can you set up regular times to talk to them? Um, if there's, if you can, if you can walk in nature, we know that nature has an amazing impact on our bodies mm-hmm. and our, 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 our soul. You know, I our, actually did an episode on that last year with you? Y- okay. Yvonne Nydigger, who is my silver lining through cancer. And I met her through breast friends. She is my, my best friend now years later. Um, but we did an amazing episode on nurture through nature. And we talked about forest bathing and just the yes. intentions of, of being outside it's and so many of us when we're seeking comfort that's not where we go we curl up on the couch with a blanket and we just kind of hide our heads but for some people that may work but the just being outside and getting in nature and moving our bodies helps so much the moving your body is super important yes and so i think that when we can do those kinds of things and not to think oh, oh my gosh i have this diagnosis now i'm I'm fragile. I can't do one thing. What are the things that you can still do? It's kind of like what else is true about your life, even with the diagnosis. And so I'm so, I'm, I'm, and you're going to have to tell me about that guest. I might want to have her on my show too. That sounds like a lovely thing. You know, how will you nurture yourself from nature? She would love that. She's amazing. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and so the other thing about it is, is that to, to start reading your nervous system. And I, I really think that interceptive awareness is what it calls in the fancy scientific term. I think this is going to be, we're going to be hearing these terms more and more because yes, there's going to be distress in your body. How can there not be? But then there, what else is true? 
you know, it's kind of like when I asked you about walking into the breast friends and when you got there and what that, what that was like for you. And so to pay attention to moments when you feel like, see, emotionally better, or just when you feel clearer in your head, you know, sometimes we'll feel foggy. There's too much coming at us, but if there's moments that you can feel even a little bit crisper, clearer, oh, what's that like? Ah, sometimes you can even feel, people have said to me, oh, I can feel like a little bit of lightness, right? So um, the other thing, and I'm thinking about my my best friend who, who died from leukemia, and when she was dying, one of the things that I would do for her that I know that she loved, was I would massage her feet. She'd lay on the couch and I'd sit at the end of her and I would just massage her feet. So touch is tricky because sometimes touch can be, we can become hypersensitive to touch when we're going through treatments or depending on the cancer. But sometimes it is the very thing that we need if we can tolerate touch. She didn't like being touched in the upper parts of her, you know, like if I was going to massage her shoulders, mm-hmm. but the feet were like, okay. And you could just see her become, I can sense the relaxation through my fingertips. Mm-hmm. So I think touch is another thing to, to, to remember. And even if, if the person's able, can they go to a massage therapist, get them an appointment to go see a massage therapist for a wonderful body massage. Those kinds of things can be helpful. Um, and I also think that if you can, and you know, let's say you're going through a treatment that can really knock you on the floor mm-hmm. and it takes a while for your energy to come back again, but see if you can take little teeny steps and it can be maybe the first day is the step is going from your bedroom to the, the mailbox and back. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, you know, running a marathon, but it's those, you know, I've learned that little steps lead to bigger steps. And the more that you can do that, the better. Um, I think the other part that I've learned is that it really is hard um, that has been shared with me for people that are in the midst of cancer. And you know this better than anybody, um, Michelle, and, and the guests that you've had, is it can be burdensome for them to see the suffering in the family members looking at them suffering. Mm-hmm. And I, I had yes. last year, I had my husband and my sister on who were some of my primary caregivers um, when I was going through treatment. And it was really funny how they both handled it so differently, but it, it, it worked for them. So everybody has different ways of, of processing and getting through. But years later, I'm five years out from all of that, that look, I can look at it now and, and process a little bit better. But at the time, all I could see on their faces was just concern for me and you know they're exhausted and they're tired but they're also worried and it is important to have hopefully have someone else who can who who can care for the caregivers because when you're going through it the cancer patient can't do it right right even even as much as we want to because especially if if you're a woman and if you're a mom we take care of everybody like we're the generally the emotional center of the household who who does all the things to hold it all together. And so when we're down with a diagnosis, that's like, oh, God, what do we do now? Right. And so I think what you said is so important is that, you know, you may not be able to be that person that's caring for that person, but maybe to say, you know, maybe you need to go out with your buddies and, you know, if they're golf, go for a game of golf or go for a walk or, you know, go down to the to the local pub and, you know, yeah. Not just to drink too much, a little bit. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't wanna, you know, yeah, it's a little bit. But I think that those are the kinds of self care for the for the family members, and and also I think that that when what I've observed being in having been in it is it was so it was so consuming, and it made other priorities not feel as important, and yet they were important. So I think, you know, I can remember um, with my son, he was a little, he needed a haircut and we were taking care of my dad and he was, you know, we were doing hospice at home and I took a look at him. He looked so mangy. I'm going, oh my gosh, the <laughs> teacher must think he's a neglected child. I took him out and got a haircut. I mean, I know that's a simple thing, but you know what I'm saying is that it's, it's a, sometimes some of the things that are also important that we might need to have somebody assign them to someone else. Mm-hmm. So like you said, you had your sister and your, and your, and your uh, husband, but maybe you can say, Oh my gosh, could you please pick him up and just get his haircut for him? Right. Or some things that you don't even are not necessarily on the schedule. Cause you're maybe, you know, orienting to, Oh, when is the chemo appointment? Okay. I have to take him over here. Then I have to do this and then I have to get him back. And then he has to go for the blood tests. You know, it's like all the, 
the minutia, right? The minutia, yes, of life. And the, the minutia of life that, you know, you didn't have to deal with before. So we well, had to we, deal with it, but you didn't have cancer in dealing with it at the right, same time. Right, right, now, right. Now, how can our listeners, I know there are a lot of resources on the TRI website. Can you talk about the blog and the, the webinars and, and finding a therapist yeah, if so, someone's interested? Yeah, so, you know, what we've tried to do um, is on the website is to give you opportunities to learn about the skills. And we, we, have, we have free little webinars that are usually about an hour long that you can download and listen to. Um, we also have, um, we offer ongoing workshops and they're not really, they're a nominal cost and not, they're not very much. And if you, if you have, if you're listening and said, oh, I would like to take, you know, we want to run your workshops, but I don't have of any money, you can always call the Institute and we have scholarships that are available as well. I but I think we've tried to make them affordable. That's part of our accessibility mission for the mm -hmm. model. Um, but the other thing too, you know, I'm going to make a plug for resiliency within. I've had a lot of guests on my show that are operationalizing using CRIM in their lives in all different kinds of settings. So you might want to just browse through the list of different guests that I've had, and you might be able to listen to some of those that might also be helpful for you. And but I, Yes, yeah. that is. I just want to do the plug. That's also on Voice America. So you can find Elaine and Resiliency Within on Voice America and also wherever you get your podcast. Same as same as here. Yeah, same. So iTunes, whatever, whatever. And you're be. also an author. So we literally have yes. about one minute. So okay. quickly, like throw out so, all that. Yes. Well, so I've written a book that's available on Amazon um, that is Building Resilience to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models. I'm right now writing the second edition. We also on the website have two workbooks that I just completed. We just updated them, one called the Community Resiliency Model, the other the Trauma Resiliency Model that you can get either in um, uh, electronic form or get a hard copy. And you can purchase those on the, on the Trauma Resource Institute website. Perfect. And that's just traumaresourceinstitute.com. Com. com okay yes dot com. i couldn't remember if it was dot yes. com or dot org yes so such good information and gosh elaine thank you so much for being here today because uh love having a fellow host on here because yes because it's <laughs> we, we could we could literally talk all day and for I hours think we could, but michelle so thank you so much for you know inviting me and that i can share my heart's work my life's work really with you and well, thank you for what you do in the world too i know that you are a really beam of light for so many people that are diagnosed in their families and thank Thank you so much for you. Well, I hope so. It, it fills my life. So thank you again. Listeners, if your loved one need our services, please visit breastfriends.org. You can make a donation on our website or by texting BF Radio to 41444 to ensure that women don't go through cancer alone. If you'd like to be a guest on my show or share with me your warrior story, please email me at michellebeck at breastfriends.org. You can find our podcast on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have a minute, please rate and review. I would love that. That would mean a lot to me. And I think that's it. So we'll be back next week. And until then, remember. <laughs> we, we rise by lifting each other. I just heard a voice. Was that God? <laughs> oh, God's naming you a five-star human being. I think that could have been yeah. Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, oh, Ryan. That you totally funny. threw me, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs>